tell your story. Words from our guest on today's episode of the Get Over It podcast, Maureen Sager, in our discussions about being creative and the creative process. You know, for a long time, for most of my life, I felt like I was not a creative person in the traditional way. You think about the arts, or I used to think about the arts and being creative. When I think about creative, I think about design and some of these abstract thoughts and being able to put things down on paper. And I always would, you know, think to myself, you know, I know that I have something to offer, but I don't truly think of myself as a creative person. And in my discussion today with Maureen, what I came to realize is that that's not true. You know, I am a creative because everybody out there has something to offer. Everybody has something that they can contribute and create. And in that, you are, in fact, creative. You know, we discussed today um, all of the ways in her career and profession has took her in different things. And now she finds herself as an advocate of creatives and especially in its impact on the economy and trying to draw investment into the creative arts and creative sector. And you can really see how much creative matters to the economy, to, uh, to an area, uh, to, to a region, a destination. Um, and I find it really fascinating. And, you know, for me, who does a lot of things, but does this art of podcasting and communication, um, that's creative. You know, tell your story, do what you do. It's okay to do what you do and be good at it and be able to tell it, but it's your ability to tell the story. No one's going to listen unless you can truly tell that story and be good at telling that story. And in that, you are actually creating and contributing. And so today, we discussed with Maureen this topic and a whole bunch of others around the idea of creatives, how the pandemic has impacted it, what is the state of creative in the economy today, and why all of us out there are in fact creative if we just open up and let it go. So what do you say? Let's get over it. All right, so our guest today on the Get Over It podcast is Maureen Sager. Now, Maureen is the executive director of the Alliance for the Creative Economy. I will say ACE, uh, so I don't have to keep saying that over and over again. Um, a project of the Center for Economic Growth, the CEG. So ACE is, and we'll talk about this, ACE is dedicated to promoting and really growing the creative industries uh, in the capital region where we are today, where we are uh, recording this. We are in, um, well, Maureen is in Albany. I'm just outside. Um, she's also the lead consultant on CapNY Regional Brand Initiative. Before moving uh, here to upstate New York, Maureen was the, was the executive producer and site director of NickJr.com, um, the world's largest, I'm sure everybody knows Nick, Nickelodeon, the world's largest internet site for parents and preschoolers. I imagine that was a really cool role. If we have time, I'll talk to her about that a little bit. Sure. She, had mar she had marketing roles at uh, several MTV networks, et cetera, internet brands. She has an MFA in screenwriting. Matt's that's a master's in fine, fine arts. We're throwing around a lot of acronyms here uh, in screenwriting from the American Film Institute in Los Angeles. She studied marketing at Fordham University, graduate school of business and a BA in English and economics from Rutgers University down in New Jersey, where I'm from. Maureen. No way. Where? Where are you from? I am from, well, I'm from Rockland County, Bergen County slash. Uh, so I okay. grew up in right on the border of both. I went to high school at Don Bosco Prep, which is in Ramsey, New Jersey. So, yeah, so yeah I lived down there for, um, I lived there my whole life, came up here for grad school. So that's a good place to start. So you grew up, so you said you were, you were born in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you seventh moved to generation Jersey? Brooklynite. Yeah, I was where, a seventh generation Brooklynite. Where in um, Brooklyn? Yeah, I was born in um, Wyckoff Heights Hospital, which okay. is in Ridgewood section, which is on like Queens Brooklyn border. Uh, then we 
moved to New Jersey when <clears throat> when I was five years old. So okay. I started kindergarten. Well, so I your schooling but... was not in the city. You weren't city schooled. You were you came out and were in Jersey at the, when you went to school. Indeed. Okay. Yep. All right. Mm -hmm. So do you remember Brooklyn? Like, do you have memories of it growing up there? Yeah, I do. Um, I remember long corridors and things that have looked nothing <laughs> like New Jersey. You know, it just right. wouldn't, there's nothing like that. So, um, yeah, I, rem I remember it. And then I moved back there later. So, uh, and that's where I had my kids. Yeah, that's where I moved up from 15 years ago. Ah. Well, yeah, I, so I guess when you were working where I, I mentioned in the, um, in the intro, that was in the city. Where was those? Yeah. It was. Yeah. I worked in the um, the big Viacom building that's in Times yep. Square. That's where MTV Networks is. And I lived out in Cobble Hill, Carroll Gardens section of Brooklyn. So so for people listening to this, they might not, I don't know, like younger kids, mm -hmm. do they know MTV nowadays? I mean, is it relevant now? I don't even know. I don't know. You know, it had started losing its relevance while I was there for sure. Um, and so... I don't know that answer. Yeah, I I'm mean, not sure. I think Nickelodeon still has relevance definitely. for that child market, but um, I don't know. It's a good question. We should yeah. call some. We should call we should. some kids. We should mm. call some kids. I mean, because MTV was so uh, a part of my life growing up. You know, Me too. back in there. Me you too. Know, I mean, the early mid nineties. Um, yeah. You know, what we used to talk about there was that show. My wife and I were talking about the grind, where people would just dance with music. Yeah. <laughs> and that was yeah. all it was. It was just people dancing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you exactly. would watch them dance to the music, you know, and it was like. Like, whoa, what is this? Um, you <laughs> probably not watch that today. Um, right. but it really did. And Nick, Nick actually now they're they're pushing this effort, they're getting involved in football. I don't know if you saw that initiative, which I think is a very smart thing. They're mm. um, slime zone in the end zone and they're trying to expand out a little bit. So it's a very cool, cool brand. So so you moved back to Brooklyn, then you came up here. So what what um before we get into a little bit of of like I'm curious to know how you got drawn to creative creative arts but before we get there like what made you was it a job opportunity that brought you up here no it was exactly the opposite of a job opportunity it was a career killer actually um <laughs> for, what, for for what i did you know i was i worked in a big shop you yep. know and um i I think I could probably point to 9-11 as one of the things that just really mm. changed my my attachment to the city. I had two small, I, they were small at the time. I had two small kids. I knew people who died. I had watched the World Trade Center fall from my window. I was on maternity leave and it shook me loose. And I never thought that I would be shaken loose from New York. I just took it that I thought I'd be there forever. And it just wasn't working for me anymore. I was working so much. Yeah. I had these little kids. I never saw them. And I don't know, it was time to go. And you were when over I came it. up here, I was, over it. I was really over it. Yeah. But this ties really back to this starting the other project in creative industries. When I moved up 15 years ago, there was zero connection, no film industry, no broadcast. There was just no networked place to, to pick up that kind of career. You know, I, I couldn't continue it because there was no next road. It was like, bang, but so then, off so, a then cliff. so then why, so why up here then, if, if that was, if that was true, Mm. Did you just, did you, you know what I mean? Like, because the, yeah. the logic there would be, why go to a place where you might not be able to continue what you're doing? Did you just like right. it up here or is it completely a void of a career choice? You know, it's interesting. This. It's an interesting for people who are like, I get a lot of people like who are questioning what to do. That seems like an yeah. interesting decision. I think there's a, even more people who are questioning where to go. Right. Yeah. Um, and a lot of them, like since COVID have, yes. are leaving the city in droves and they don't know where to go, but they are coming here. And one of the things that, cause 
I looked for like two years of where to go. And there's a house, there's a price housing bubble around the city that would have kept me tied to the city and that career that was, that was not allowing me to have the, the time with my kids that I wanted. And so only after we got up around Albany did that t- price break start to happen where I thought, okay, I could cut cords and I could have a life and try and piece something together. But it was that affordability yep. that took me up here where we, where I didn't own in the city. I wish I did when at that time. But, right. um, so that meant that I had to like, it was my first house I ever bought. I was 40. And, um, which is kind of late in life, you know, up here, people, the afford, people were right, because you could all had houses when they right. were in their twenties, you know, not me. And so it was just getting started. I started an entirely different life up here at 40. So that's one of the, I mean, one of the great allures of being up here is that you can afford to live, have a home, you know, have yeah. a nice life without having to break your back and mind in, in just working constantly just so you can afford that. I mean, that was one of the things like, we always say like, if I want all of our families down, down South, down by the city, down by Rockland, for us to go back there, it would be a major change. It would be a major, you know, my, the, my hour, you know, I could, you know, it, it, to, to, to have the same kind of life. It's not yeah. a proportional jump, you know, it's a very different, different um, jump. Um, so I want to understand, we, you know, Maureen and I were talking a little bit about the creative and the creative brain. Did you, I like to ask people who, who are, have akin to create creatives or in this space, did you find, when, when was, when did you know that you had of that mindset? Was it early on in life? Were you gravitating towards it? Were people in your family creatives or was it not that? I would say no. People are, my family were not creative. Um, I'm a first generation college grad on my dad's side. Like, no, it's not, it's just not where I come from. My grandfathers were a plumber and a truck driver. Like, okay. you know, it was people who did something you could describe and point to, you right, know, like creative. Tangible, is like, right, exactly. Like, right, yeah. yeah, I know what a truck driver is. Yeah. So, but a creative, like, no, it was not a thing. But um, I did have aunts who went to FIT, the Fashion Institute yep. of Technology, and they didn't actually go into school, but I was like, huh, Fashion Institute? What on what earth is that? is that? You know, like, and it was so much different than anything I saw around me. And, I, and it just, so I would say that I didn't know creative people, but there was like this idea that you could do something creative that I, I don't know why. I didn't know anybody else in God, my entire town, you know, who had a creative career. And yet for some reason, I thought I should do that. I started um, writing, creating stuff. When I went to college, like I was about halfway through before I took a video class and then I started studying film. And I I don't know what gave me this chutzpah, but I decided I wanted to go to film school. Like why? Whoever. I, I never, I never met anybody who went to film school. My dad was like, but was what? it the fa- what was do you do you know what was the fascination about it? Was it the creating mm. of it? Was it was it the industry in itself? Did you just like no, movies? No, definitely like, not was- the industry. I wouldn't have. I didn't know anything about the right. industry, um, which was a problem later. Right, but, right. Um, <laughs> I just fell in love with film as a medium. I had yeah. a really good film professor. Um, I had a, several at Rutgers, but one in particular really. She was super young. She went on 
to, I, ju- I just saw her obituary not too long ago in the New York Times. Like she went on to a big wow. career later in film, you know, his, film history and teaching, which is not a giant field, I didn't think. But like she went, she was of note and I didn't know that. Um, but she just really blew my mind as to all the things that were going on in a film. Like historically, she, she tied it back. She was from East Germany and she tied these films back by this filmmaker called Alexander Kluge, um, who probably no one's heard of, but she tied it back to her own experience as a East German and how they dealt and how this filmmaker was expressing like in a subtext of um, guilt over the war or their experiences. And I was like, wow. Like, wow. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Yep. What? I was I was totally blown away. And and by her relating it back to herself, it changed everything for me. Like I, I started to understand that, like, oh, someone made this with their right. own hands. It wasn't it wasn't like it came out of a book. Like a screenplay doesn't come out of a book. You know, like you have to like try on the whole thing. You have to process it through your whole being to have it come out the other side and be its own thing. Right. And I think that that she planted that idea for me of um, that a person made this, you know, and and that I could make that. So yeah, I think it came from her, maybe. I never, I never put that so, together like, before. You see, this is a good this is a good lesson in in teachers and their impact, and professors and their impact. Mm. Because mm. in my experience, I'm I I can recall it was in high school with a a, um, a biology teacher who really made a mark on me. I always gravitated towards sciences, but there was I just remember a distinct moment. It was my sophomore year where. Like, you know, the way that the information was conveyed, the the passion that came across really connected with me. And then um, there are there are points in life where teachers, professors, they shine through and can really make a difference. Mm-hmm. It could be the difference in a direction that you take. In fact, it's interesting you brought that up and with creative. Like I was never interested, I was always science. Um, you know, in particular, like biological science minded, and and that's where I went. But I took an art history. I went to the University of Miami down in Coral Gables, and they had a lot of arts things down yeah. there. And I took an art history class because I sort of had to get an elective. You know how that works in liberal arts. And I wasn't mm-hmm. expecting anything of it, and I expected it to be boring, you know, and not relevant to what I wanted to do as a twenty-year-old and trying to get into possibly grad school in science. But I remember the teacher was incredible, and it, mm. this stuff was so interesting. And I remember, I remember my saying to myself, "I could take another class in this, no doubt." And I think that yeah. it can really have an effect on you um, for someone to inspire you to keep keep going. So, so you follow that string in film, in in screenwriting, and then where did that get to? Did you get to a point like, do you still write, uh, um, you know, things like, did it get to a point where you're like, this isn't for me, but you stayed in creative or how far did you? Yeah, that's what happened. That's exactly what happened. So I went, all right, I'm going to tell you a brief foray. So I was in, so I was at Rutgers and I was studying film and I thought I might want to go to film school. But in the meantime, I moved my ass to Brooklyn for no reason at all, for no good reason. It was just something that I thought I should do. So I moved to Brooklyn and my parents were like, we're not paying for you to move to Brooklyn. And I was, I thought, huh. How old were you at this point? 22, 21. And um, so I had to go out and get a job the next day. And I went to an agency that sent me out and they sent me to 
Glickman Marks Management Company. And it turned, I was the uh, receptionist for Kiss, the rock band. So as a, on a temp assignment. So I became the receptionist for Kiss. Imagine so that. that. Imagine you get a temp assignment to be the receptionist for Kiss. Jesus. Hilarious, right? And, but that was my ex first exposure when you were saying the industry. I, that was the first time I even like could picture that there was an industry. You know, they had yep. 10 people working for them just on the management side. They had two staff artists. You know, it, it just, that blew my mind too, that there was that creative, you know, that. Like it's a business. Mo There's it's a, Oh, it was right. such a business. Right, right. They had business managers. They right. had, oh, they had, yeah, all sorts of stuff, accountants. And um, so I didn't know about, they had a receptionist. They, I didn't know anything about that. So I got exposed to the industry along the way for this weird six-month job I had. Um, and then I moved out to AFI and I went to Los Angeles and I went to American Film Institute, AFI, um, into, and it's a really small school. It's like a hundred people when I went there and uh, I was really young. Um, I wish most people who went there were going around the age of 30 or older because they were having a career and then they right. were sort of using it as a finishing school, right. Right? which is the way that makes the most sense to do. Like as, at 23, I'd never, I never lived anywhere else. I, I right. didn't know anything, you know, and I had nothing to offer the people in that school. They were all like, Ooh, I worked here. I worked here. I, I like didn't know like, anything. I answered the phones for kids. <laughs> right. That was all I had. Is that how the so, MFA just to, so MFAs, no. are they, um, are they research oriented? How does it? No, it, this it, was a, this was a maker school. Um, okay. you had the special, you went in with a specialty. It's not like you could just study film. Okay. I went in as a screenwriter. Um, you, you could be a director and that was a super competitive program or screenwriter or, um, cinematographer. Uh, someone I went to school with has won several Oscars, like, um, or a production designer. And, or a producer. And so you have, there were five specialties and we made films. It's the minute you got there, that's why I was like, uh, I'm not prepared. Right, you're like, I'm not there yet. I was, no, I, right. I, I was in zero preparation for this. But people came in on day one, they were like, bam, right. crew enough. And I was like, so I wasn't ready. So did that ready. frustrate you or did it fuel you? Did it both or what happened? I, you know, because I'm from New Jersey, I like yeah. a challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you do. We do. Um, That's for so sure. That didn't, it didn't bowl me over. Like I, I was shocked, but I wasn't going to tell anyone else that. Right. So I just sort of like did it. Like In I was true Jersey I was fashion. Don't it. let anyone know I what did. you're feeling. Just, just go it, for it. Oh, <laughs> never. Right. So, so yeah. So I just start, I jumped in and, and I started doing it and halfway, like was I was, People were so schmoozy though, and I'm not a schmoozer. And I was like, I hate this other part, this, you know, what's your pitch? This, this, right. this. I was right. like, ew, I'm just learning how to write a screenplay. And everybody wanted me to pitch it. And I was like, I didn't write it. You know, yeah, like, I got to write for us, right? It felt like such, it felt like bullshit to me, you know, and um, in that way of like, I don't lie. I, did, I, I would tell a true story, but I didn't know what the story was yet, you know? So I felt like there were, I couldn't make that up, you know, my lack of experience. I, I couldn't lie about my lack of experience. Right. I was kind of straightforward 
with myself about it. And I didn't like writing that much. You know, I wasn't terrible at it. I got good, really good feedback about it, but I hated the process of sitting down every morning. I wrote, I wrote from seven to noon every day and it was really hard, you know, um, and I had to churn out screenplays and I had to teach myself that. And I started to like, hate. I didn't like that process of sitting on my desk. I ended up liking being on set a lot. I loved the back end, like putting the pro- the, the product together. I, I liked reading other people's scripts. I didn't like writing them myself. Um, I like writing dialogue, but I didn't, I didn't love the whole schmoozy thing. So and what do so, you do at that point? You don't really like know, writing as wait, a screenwriter. Should, right. Should someone have asked themselves that before they went? Sure. No, that would be logical. Went, I, exactly. We don't, we don't sure, work that way. Right. Right. So, so I didn't. So I got out there of there not knowing what to do. And um, except I knew what I didn't want to do. One was I didn't want to be a screenwriter. Um, the other was I didn't want to live in LA. Well, there's another thing that I just had made a million, a hundred good connections in LA and I didn't like it. Like, I'm out. Yep. What about, I'm curious. Uh, what was it? Is, what was it about LA? It was just LA in yeah. general? Like, I've been to LA. It's LA. Mm. I don't know how to describe it more than that. But. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, there was one good thing. I was, so I was young and I was 23 when I went to film school to 20. I lived out there from 23 to 27. And that's a really good age to be out in LA. Um, I think because everything's fun. We were out right. like every night. Right. You go out. That's, that's, every, that's, yeah, that's great. Ve- I'm Vegas or like the desert. Like we're just out all the time or, or Mexico is so much fun. So it was a good age to be there. But um, and it's really nice to be a New Yorker in LA because everyone thinks you're super smart. So if you just say you're from New York, everyone's like puts you up 10 points right like so and you hang out with all the other new yorkers and being all like puff puff. yeah so so we were having fun but um the schmooziness just isn't me it just really and i'm not i'm not being like i'm above it i just it just just i actually don't yeah I think it's, I think it's just not me. And so I really wasn't going to be able to thrive in an environment of like, what's your pitch? You know, it just like, I could do lots of other stuff, but not that. I would much rather be the girl doing the numbers, putting that stuff together in the back. I had studied economics when I was in college and I really, really, really liked it. If I was going to do anything else in life, I would have done that. Um, which will bring me to the ACE project in a minute, but just, you know, just getting, being behind the scenes really worked for me. And so when I went back to New York, um, I worked for a filmmaker, didn't like doing that. Um, I got a job though for the National Film Board of Canada. And then I hopscotched over, and these there's like four film jobs. So I've already covered two of them. In all of New York, there's like four film jobs, right? There's, it's just not a film town. and. Then this thing opened up at Polygram Filmed Entertainment and Polygram, the big record company, um, had bought up a bunch of really small film studios and made a film division. And I was like, whoa, that's a real film job. So I applied, I got it, which I was super And that role was what? I was, I started as an administrative assistant. Even though I had a master's degree, I started as an administrative assistant and we released indie films. And this was around the indie film time of like super pretty early, pretty yeah. early 
indie films. So um, I worked on the releases of The Usual Suspects, of Dead Men Walking, oh, wow. of Four Weddings and a Funeral, which oh. to, at that time was the biggest indie film ever made. Wow. It, it blew out. Like we were, everybody was deer in the headlights because we were set up to have small releases for, you know, for years. There was only a couple of us there and uh, in the New York side. Um, and this film was chunk, 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 it kept getting bigger and bigger and which was nobody had seen a film wow. released like that before. And we were just there 24 hours a day. You know, it was, it just took over our lives. And then we had several other hit movies afterwards. I was like, wow, wow. it was just, it was happening, you know? And because at that time, indie film wasn't a big thing. This was in the nineties. Um, so it was like 93, 90. 94 uh, like around like yeah. something like that and so it was just at that where the where indie film started to become a big thing and the studios started pivoting themselves toward indie film you know which is where they remain now so um or separate than the marvel film. i was actually like, just looking that became that became, that became looking, a just bigger the film by the way i'm just curious mm -hmm. like i'm looking at the yeah. budget it was like 2.8 million that's in british let's say english pounds box mm -hmm. office did 250 million yeah, we had never seen anything like it. It was wow. bizarre. And so that was super fun, though. And I loved that part of the business. I loved being on the other side, right? I loved, I, when I read the script, I was like, I wish I wrote that script. That's a really good script. And then when the film came out, I was like, ah, they did it. You know, but, like they but were gave, you disconnected? For, so so you, this the mm -hmm. script was the script, then it's made. You're not in that process, though. I wasn't in that process, but I was so jealous you just when saw I read the it script. Come out, and you were like, I, "Wow!" It was a, a well. You'd start to see it. So where I, you know, when you're in a studio, you get to see the film as it's being, you know, as it's being like made. Pieces, or, okay. or, yep. Right. You get to see it before it's sweetened, where there's no sound in it, which is a very weird thing. I saw Fargo before it had sound in it, and before it had the music laid in. What is that like? And it looked like a slasher film. Like I was really upset by it, to tell you the truth. I, I wasn't, I was not, it didn't make me feel good. So when you see a film before all the pieces are together, it's really interesting. It's really not there yet. Like how much each individual creative person adds to the overall product is remarkable. Right. I was going to say that just gives you an, a sense for how much, for example, the sound or something contributes to the oh. overall feel. You know, when people watch yeah. like, you know, the Oscars or the Academy Awards, mm. they always want to know who's the best actor and all these things. Yeah. But, and all of those things, you know, the cinematography, the sound and the whatever, no one really cares about that. But yeah. to your point, it, it really makes oh. a huge difference in how, right. this, and how I it's don't, I don't think Right. I don't think I would know that in, unless I had seen it with my own eyeballs, you know, of just what a big deal it is. So I watched those films and all their pieces come together and then be the thing that gets handed out into the world, which was really super cool. You didn't get to go to Sundance yeah. Festival when it came out, did you? For I, di I didn't. I wasn't. That's the LA people. We were the New York people. You right. got to keep us in. They, mm -hmm. So, so, so the same how, how long were you there at that, at that role? Uh, I think I was there for three years. I had burned out pretty bad, um, badly. And, um, so, and it was kind of hurting the relationship I was in. This mm. man I later married, now divorced, but that's okay, Chris. Yeah, Things happen. that's okay. That is life. And that is totally, it worked out great for everybody. But that being said, like I was really damaging my relationship. I, you can't, I can't 
work that much and think that everything's going to turn out okay. And I keep Learn, re- learning and relearning this this lesson. It seems for like myself. you've had that that in your life. It seems like you've come across those cross those cross that crossroad a bunch of times in your life. Like you said earlier in in you know in the you know in New York, uh, yeah. you couldn't do it anymore, or well, later wherever that was. Like you you've come yeah. across these things and you've identified, recognized, and made a decision whether or not you know it wor- it worked out or it didn't. But like a lot of people can't do that. You know, it's it's a self awareness situation that I think a lot of people lack. Yeah, I think I get a lot of cues from the people around me. Mm. Yep. <laughs> so um, because I don't, I don't have a lot of balance in that sense, and it's still happening. You know, because you go all it, in on serves, something, you go. It all. does, but you know, but I gotta say, so I've had a, this conversation a lot with my friend Rachel Dunn, who um, also came comes from the same kind of industries. The industry is built for weirdos like that. Like that is the price of getting a job in those places. You work right and that's how you get in and that's how you stay in and so i i have i guess i have a love it's not even love hate i have a a balance thing where i do have that work drive but it costs me too much you know and so yes i've gone in and out of it several times because i don't have a lot of balance and the industry demands you to not have work-life balance that wasn't that's not why you're there you're there to work and to work really hard so yeah. where do you and go everybody, after- And one person one-ups themselves. You know, right. everybody's one. I worked 70 hours this week. I Eesh. worked this, that. You know, everybody's out over drinks bragging about how much they worked that week. So I always, and, I've had that. I've been in that situation before. And I'm mm, thinking to myself, like, I'm looking at this person, like, do you really feel good about that though? Like, are I know. You I feel like an idiot saying it. I totally agree. I feel like an idiot saying it, but I'm just, you know, kind of saying it in the spirit of, I admit it. I don't think it's cool though. And I don't think right. it's a good like, it thing be, about myself. Right. It's but, not a great thing to say. So where do you go after mm-hmm. this now? After polygram um i went to i took a foray into scholastic which is a children's publisher you know they were doing the harry potter series and um so but that a really interesting thing happened there which was that they had a really wildly unpopular internet division that people going into the internet Mm -hmm. and this was the late 90s and Mm -hmm. um i was like oh i want to do the internet mm-hmm. when i was at polygram there was a internet there was a um a little show you could go see something about the internet because you could read about it but you couldn't see the internet you know so i went to um i got a folder that you know that said like come see a demonstration of the internet and i was like huh uh-huh. hooray and i thought everybody in the world was going to go down there three people went yeah. to the demonstration of the internet and it was in a closet it was in someone's closet. That's awesome. That just shows it you the was awesome. times, right? But I know. I fell in love with it when I saw it. They showed me, the, the thing that they showed at the internet demonstration was, um, a, was a promo for the Batman movie starring George Clooney, which no one knows happened, but it did. And it was the world's slowest demonstration of like, chunk, chunk. It was rolling in. It was over dial up or something and um but i saw it and and they were like and this can be seen in china in in brazil and i was like oh instant access yeah so i was totally excited but anyway when i was at scholastic i um 
there was a job open in the internet division. And I was like, I'm going to go do that. And everyone, my friends were all like, that'll be a career killer. Because <laughs> I was going to leave marketing. I was like, I'm going anyway. So I went into the internet division and I loved it. You that loved was the best, it. that was the best move I've ever done. It was like all the things coming together, you yep. know, like my love of economics and information and data. It was all coming in in real time. Like if you're making a movie that takes like seven years right. for the product to come in, yep. the internet's like, bam, 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 bam. bam. Yep. It was, and I'm one of those people, right? Like it just suited my personality. Um, and I was blown away. I absolutely loved it. We launched their, the big Scholastic website. And um, not that you, I wasn't saying like you, that you know, it It just encompassed the whole company. Like you had to start thinking big as to how can, how can a company, a giant bricks and mortar billion dollar company. Put everything onto like these pages. Right. Right. And nope. And I know it sounds. And back then I imagine that was incredibly daunting, right? Right. Back back then is a big and kind of profound question. How do you do that? But as a creative person, that was so not daunting to me. Like how, because I'd been for a long time, I think I've been asking questions like, how do you condense someone's life into two hours? Right. Like right. it was, that's true. it was, ah, that's so it was a way that I was like, Oh, I know. Like, I know. I yeah. Right. In its own way. Like I knew the pathway you could take to do that in myself. And so I was able and really loved the scale of it, you know, to be able to bring it down into a thing, make sure it was focused. Like what's the, all the things I learned in film school or, or, other times from creative work, which is what's the central idea? How do you distill it right? How do you, what's the right direction? You know, what's the right voice? What's the tone? All those things I was, they all got called into play and yet the pace was super fast and I loved that. So um, that's where I, so I started working at Scholastic and that was in that early dot-com area era that um, things went super fast too. And so I wasn't even in there. They were, Nick, uh, VH1, which is a MTV Networks brand for like Ludu folks, um, was looking for, I got a call, you know, would you want to go? We're looking for seasoned internet veterans. Can you, do you want to come over and interview? And I was like, seasoned? I've been doing internet for like eight months. They were like, that's That's plenty. (laughs) You're in. So I went over and and I did, and that job, they were like, I think we're going to give it to this other person, but I think you're, I think we'd love to have you somewhere we're going to find a place for you here. And then I ended up at Nickelodeon. So um, with eight months of internet experience, but that was plenty, you know, because of how fast it was coming on and like taking over New York. And so I don't know, it happened. And, and that was a, that was a big leap. That was your, that like was a, the real a big consol- shot. That was, that was, the, was, it was the consolidation of everything you've been doing now. You and you sort of just, you sort of then saw and then had like a real track, if you will. Like, a, yeah. And, right? I, and it turned out I had been trained for that, right? Like, right. like that creative training. And right. maybe this gets back to creativity. Like why, why be a creative person is because it actually did set me up for that. It's not a straight line and it's not on your resume, but I knew how to, go from an idea, an abstract idea in Correct. my head into something tangible at Correct. the end. I could, that process I had done. Correct. And so I was, and I was even able to help other people do that too. You know, like it was yeah. that, um, that because that was familiar to me. And so I think that's, that's how it, that's how it works so well. You see, um, I, as a I, I, I deal with this a lot and I get this mm. a lot. And I think it's a, I think it's a real, 
it's something interesting that's happening. You get resumes and you look and, and, and it's not linear. And if we, right. if we define someone's ability by what they've, what they studied or what's on paper, you lose a lot. And like for yeah. me, as I mentioned, like I'm a neuroscientist, I am a mm-hmm. developmental neuroscientist by training and right. I am in an agency where I direct digital marketing. If you look at the two on its face, right. or you look mm-hmm. at my resume, you'd be like, what the hell is this? What the hell is this guy right. doing? But yeah. it's not about the subject matter. It's about the process for me. Totally. And what I've learned, what, what grad school had taught me, someone, someone has asked me, you know, spent five years in a PhD program and years in our lab doing research. They say, you know, do you like, was it worth it looking back? Like now were you doing what you're doing? And my answer is absolutely. And the reason why is because I taught me how to think. It taught me how to assess and mm. use data, make analyses, and that is relevant regardless of yeah. whatever you're in. So it might not be a straight line, but it's very, yeah. very parallel. And I, I feel like I hope nowadays in the world mm. we live, we don't just look at what, try to say, well, you know, you're here, you're here, and then you have to go here because mm. I think you might lose on good talent or not necessarily give that a chance, you know, where like you're saying, like, you are in fact trained for it. It just doesn't look like that on its face, you know? Um, yeah. Wait, and I, it's up to, it's on a person too, to be able to, to be able to, I guess have enough, I'll use that word chutzpah again, um, to say like, wait, I know how to do this, even though it's not on my resume. You know, like you need to own that too. The, the, you need to own that too. You can't wait for someone else to Correct. discover that for you. It comes from inside of you to say, I can do this. Right. And, and I can convince you that I can, and I can show you that I can, you know. Exactly. Right. Yeah. To, to rise to that right. challenge within to rise. yourself. And that's very Jersey-like, rise to it, the challenge. I know. By the way, this and is I'm a coincidence. It, Look at this. Can right. you see this? Can you see my mug? I don't know if you can see yes, this. Yes, I can. Right across the mug. Yeah, that's a I like a it. shout I like out to it. New Jersey. By the way, everyone, we're talking mm-hmm. to Maureen Sager, the executive director of the Alliance for the Creative Economy. And we, you know, let's transition to, let's go to ACE now because I'm looking at the time and I want to make sure we talk okay. about it. So sure, sure. Tell, tell, tell us how that was born, what it is, so we can understand. And now with a good context of where you came from professionally, mm-hmm. let's see what it's in, you know? Okay, sure. Um, so the Alliance for the Creative Economy is about five years old now and it came out of a data set um people started and this is something super important to me about creativity so this idea of a creative economy was a really reimagining of what used to be called the art or what still is called but the arts and culture sector which sounds so rarefied and if someone had said to me the arts and culture like where i come from and the family i sounds very like like, arts and culture i'd be like what? That yeah, doesn't exactly. even sound like that's fun, not for you know? us. Right, right. I, and I'm not a. I don't come from a culture background, so that there have that holds no appeal to me. Yet culture, it sounds like it's specialized or for rich people or something, and I fear that for you know the sometimes when people say the arts, it's like actually the arts are this what we're doing right here, right? Like you, this is the art. This is creative. So what is creative work? It's anybody who says it's creative, right? right. Like if you're trying to differentiate it by your own body, your own self, like that whole that thing you bring to this world, that's creative, right? So it's the so we add in things like. Um, artisanal food, you know, so that a cheesemaker, I, I usually, always use this example because it resonates for me. Like Kraft tries to make a cheese that's a commodity product. Every slice is exactly the same. Every 
packet of cheese. But a creative, an artisanal person tries to find something that's different. Like they a do unique. the exact opposite. They, they differentiate themselves by themselves, by using themselves, you know, as, as that, as what is the point of differentiation? Like either I raised those goats and it's going to be made with these goats milk. It's going to have this, I studied and, you know, I, I, I taught myself this thing, you know, that story of the beer, yep. you know, right, of, of, right. that ethos, that, right. that what there's makes something this- deeper behind it. Right. There's something right, else. Exactly. Right, 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 because right. there is, there's, there's me or you, there's the, right. there's the person who's Correct. doing it. Right. And so that's what the creative industries are. And that's what the creative economy conversation is about it makes it much less rarefied of the arts it's more about like no we make stuff and we make beyond that we make what's cool about the place where you live right we're changing towns we're 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 really important to a a, to make ourselves relevant as a destination where we change everything the creative people do and the coolest thing about that data set, though, is that um, we saw that when we define the creative industries broadly in that way, not just like how many museums do you have? You know? right. Instead, we were counting all the people in all of the creative industries. It turned out to be the fourth largest employment sector in the capital region, a place that's not really? at that time ever known to be a creative place, right? Like I didn't think of it as a creative place. But when I saw that data set, I was like, and others too, believe me, it wasn't just me. But when there's, when we saw that data set, we're like, There's something here. Yeah, right, right. There's so much there. Right. And then we started doing events and things to have people come out, you know, who identified as creative or who identified as freelancers because so over half the people in the creative industries are yeah. side hustling or freelancing. Yeah. I feel like it's moving more their that own way businesses. Too. Yeah, yeah. And that just sped up, right? In yep. this last year. Yeah, for sure. So, um, so when we started throwing those events, we thought like five or six people would come out. We were getting like 150. Our last event had 350 people at it. You know, like people want to talk about this stuff and they want to do that because they know what it is. Like they just know, they know what it is in their own life. They know what it is in the place where they live. And yet the articulation of it is so comforting, you know, to be able to see that statement of saying, this is a creative place. What you do is creative. What you do changes things economically for that town, like to give it importance. That's what the ACE project has been about. And um, it's just really helping people put themselves and own that, you know, what they offer to a place. And, and um, it matters it, that, that, that pride matters a lot to help people move forward in there. So, so, work. so, so this is, it's awareness you hold it. Tell us about like the, what, uh, what, like the, on the ground, like, what is it are, you're raising awareness about you open it for creatives to come in? Is it open to non-creatives? Like, how does it, how yeah. does it look? Yeah, you have to put parameters and yeah, you have to put, yeah, we can't, so because it's an economic development project and that's how we define it, we're not trying to be like an arts organization, we're so not an arts organization and there are such good ones out there, that's why, you know, we don't, the world doesn't need one more of those. What it needed or, and still needs is the articulation to make it relevant to those, to make it an investable sector. Meaning um, we showed how valuable it is to a place. And so we showed that it's worthy of economic investment by the state, by private industry, by individuals themselves. You know, that's, so that's what ACE does. That's what we grabbed out. The Alliance for the Creative Economy, like economy, we try to stick, that's our, that's our 
um, that's our path is to keep putting it in economic development terms. So, uh, yeah, that's the, that's the, so, I mean, let, let, me lane. You, let me ask you this question. I mean, you know, the, um, there's, there has been a lot of hard hit, you know, mm. sectors or industries uh, in the situation. And this creative one, I imagine, is one of the biggest. How, how, how have you seen that? And where are, what's the status of this right now? I mean, what yeah. are the, you know, talk about that a little bit. It's, like, been, I imagine absolute, it's been tough, right? It's been absolutely devastating yeah. for the creative industries. We're still not started up again. You know, mm. just, and the data's on a lag, the way it's reported. You can't see it for months and months. Um, even so, we knew anecdotally, what right. the pain that there's a lot of pain out there, but we just uh, found out within the last couple of weeks what the numbers look like. So for third quarter of 2020, um, performing arts and sports were the highest, were the hardest hit industries on a percentage basis. 68% of jobs lost. 68%. Well, actually, um, film and television and sound recording. 59% of all jobs were lost. Yeesh. This is rough, right? So uh, the, on a dollar basis, it was those the restaurant and food service sector. So the creative economy got killed mm -hmm. and freelancers were hit worse than those who were traditionally employed because we didn't have the, right. our access to PPP loans and things like that was not at right. all equal. The support and nets, so, they're, they're not the same, right? Yep. They are not the same. And so- those industries were hit terribly hard. And now that we're reopening again, I think it's a danger to think like, oh, everything's going back to normal. Like, no. How do you run a concert at 25% capacity? What do the economics on that look like? How does that work? You know, how someone, there's musicians out of work for over a year now. Like, this is rough. So, um, no, the pain is real. And for the creative industry, I, I, we are one of the hardest hit industries. So what happens now? I mean, is there, is there, is there a move to get investment, like a, to, like a, I guess call it a stimulus or something to get it back and going, or it's, it, it's irrelevant because like you said, mm -hmm. restrictions just make it only so much possible. Exactly. There's is that a, what so, it is. Yeah, there's bills like coming up through the legislature and the, to try and get relief on this, but um, it's really hard to figure. Well, some of them are, are eligible for the, the business as are other businesses, you know, some creative businesses. But for those individuals, this is ridiculously hard and it's very hard for any stimulus package to be specialized into in right. this sector. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I mean, let me ask you this, like the, you were told, we were talking about freelance and like a move mm. towards like these freelance. And I know freelancing is, has its appeal and it has its mm. benefit, but it also has yeah. that, it always has that risk, right? Because you don't have the layer of that security, like other jobs come with a salary and things like that. Yeah. You, how do you think this affects that? I mean, this is the epitome mm. or like the, the, pinnacle situation that would threaten freelancers, right? Something yeah. like this. But it's obviously, I hope, I hope this is something that doesn't become a regular occurrence. Do you think it alters how creatives or freelancers approach that? Do you think they say, man, I don't know about this. I need to, or do you think, no, they're just going to mm. continue forward? Well, 
I think that a lot of us like to work that way. I've been freelance since I left Nickelodeon, actually. I really like it, but it suits my personality, you know. So, and the affordability up here, I would never do this in New York. I'd right. never be a freelancer in the city, right? Like, yeah, that's crazy. Just like, ah, so, yeah, exactly. Yep. Right. So, you, so, I think that our affordability really helps that. Um, so, I think two things happen, though. I think that more people are going to be forced into freelancing because they lost, you know, because there's been job loss across the way. So I think that people will find their way into it. I think that companies like it. Um, so, you know, to not have to have so many people on staff, you know, like a graphic designer, not many industry, not many companies, not, you know, non-creative companies need a full-time staff graphic designer, but they do need a logo. And so they'll call over it, you know, like that it works to have these things decentralized and not on staff. So I think it'll always, it always makes some sense, but I think what's going to have to happen. And you'll, you, there's a case in California uh, that um, for, and in London just now, or England about Uber drivers, like people going freelance, we're going to have to start to extend, the government is going to have to start mm -hmm. extending more protections yeah. for workers who who go freelance because the economy actually does it favors freelance you know it, it's cheaper for a company to have to hire a freelancer than a traditional employee but the government has to meet that and give an off uh, and offer those protections for the first time ever last you know when covid hit um freelancers were eligible for unemployment for the first time oh really if you're a freelancer and you lost your main gig you didn't even have unemployment the next day. You're is it, out. Maureen, is it, is it so, income based though? Like, is that how that works? Yeah. Like you, okay. All right. Yeah. You had to track it over quarters, but yeah, yep. so it was. We but talked you still to a became, lot of, you were eligible though. You were allowed to uh -huh. try. Yeah. Wow. And it worked great. It worked, especially when there was that $600 benefit, you know, it helped people along the way. Um, so the more that governments start to adapt themselves to that reality of freelancing and um, the benefits that, you know, that it affords big companies, I think that we'll start to see this third class of worker. Right now, it's really stark. There's traditional, there's freelance, but a lot of this in the middle, this is what people are grappling with with Uber. It's like they work for Uber, but they're, right. called, get, they're not giving them any benefits at all. Like what's this middle ground? You know, how can we work with that? So hopefully that's something that uh, remains central to conversation. Yeah, I, guess, I guess it's all in, I guess if there's a strong set of data to show, like you're saying, that the impact on the economy is great and good when they're working, right? That's the yes. impetus for them getting the protections there, right? And if it's cheaper for a corporation, right? Like corporations win. Just go there, right? If, right? if corporations prefer it, that's true. Then great. Yeah, It'll you'll happen. get move. You'll so get movement if corporations. You'll get prefer some it. movement, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. If Maureen Sager tells you, or, or Chris right. tells you, right. maybe not. But even you know. if some data so, tells you, a lot of times corporations telling you has a lot more pull. Right. So, um, so I think that that's what will get settled out in the next couple of years because, um, or it has to. Um, also, the Affordable Care Act was great. If you had no access to health insurance, how could you? Yeah. So, so those things will all continue to help. Yeah. The sector, you know, but, it's but so, the sector needs help for, for sure. It's, I mean, and it, you know, it's going to take a while. It'll take a bit to yeah. completely. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Mm. You brought that up. I, when I go to um, um, Italy, I go to Europe to visit uh, family and um, 
you know, a lot of these young kids um, who are just, they're finished school, they're young, because he was a painter. And um, mm. he paints when he paints and he doesn't when he doesn't. And, mm. you know, he'll paint a couple days a week and then he has enough money to do what he needs to do. And then he'll, you know, pick up another painting job when he needs it. Um, it's like our freelance, but it's less aggressive. And the reason why that lifestyle is so, is, is easier there is because he doesn't have to worry about the healthcare thing. He doesn't have to, like right. a lot of the social program nets out there allow you to take a as needed approach to your income. Whereas here it's a bit different, especially if you're in that world um, and you know, you know, forcing people to work just because they have to work but not necessarily doing the work that they need or feel like they should be doing. I think that's yeah. always been a thing that it's been frustrating for me here is that the baseline is different. And if you can provide people with a little bit of a baseline, you might spur uh, more creativity or something like that that might not otherwise take root because there's just too much risk for someone possibly to go down that road, you know? Right, creativity and innovation, right? There Correct. might be this smarter way to work. There's a lot of time, you know, we really value button seat time. What good is that? You know, I can sit my butt in this seat for the next 20 hours, not necessarily anything's going to come from that. Right. You know, I have to want that. And so to a, a person who's motivated, a person who's thinking creatively, a person who wants to do what they want to do when they want to do it, that person is generally, you'd have to guess, more productive. Right, right? the productivity that they those, spend that time. Exactly, because exactly. you can't force productivity, right? It comes out of true passion and mm -hmm. what you really want to do. And it's, it's, it's a struggle, especially when you're, when you're, you know, and you have to be driven by, like we talked about being in New York, when you have to pay for your, you know, 3000 a month studio apartment, you're driven by other things, right? It's right. It's, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a for sure. Does that, did that make me creative by being in New York? No, no. Um, that, that part was crushing. You know, that's the part that finally crushed it. It actually wasn't fun anymore. Um, so yeah. Yeah, you just became I mean, like we, you were we going through the motions, yeah. Right. We just outlined a really good case for a universal basic income, right? You not, see that? not replacing all of your income, but re replacing that. Yeah, that or some sort of baseline of to a standard of mm -hmm. life. And I think I think right. we in this country we a lot of, we knee jerk to these things, but mm -hmm. you know, if you think about it holistically, which I feel like just our our, our unfortunately people in our country we don't do, you know, if you see the whole picture yeah. It has benefits. It's just like you, but people get stuck on what they view to be, um, you know, oh, well that I, I'm working. Why can't you work? It's not that they don't want to work. Right. It's right. not that they're it's actually willing to work and work really well. It's just that their type of work is not, is not yours. And so it's a different situation. I mean, I, I don't know yeah. how you get people needs, to think that way. It, but it, the case needs to be made. And if it's not relevant and doesn't work, it shouldn't go through. But if, but there has to be, you know, there, I think the, you have to be that open to listening people, to it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a certain, right. You have to right. be open to listen to it. But you have, no, I, I take it back on us always. Like I take it back. If you want it, you got to work really hard to explain it. And if you didn't explain it right, try again. It's on us. If that's what something we want, it's not on them to hear better. It's on us to tell it better. And that's true every time. That's a, to me, that's a creative industries thing. Like it's not like people don't appreciate my goat cheese. It's like, does it taste good? Is it priced right? You know, there are certain basic things you can't right. ask the world to change for you. Correct. Right. You have You're to exactly tell right. it. Or, or right. for and me, the story, a story you have to be able to like, tell the story. If I didn't too. tell it right. Right. Then you I have don't to be, right. deserve their, their 
six minutes. So yeah, what I was saying, we were, you talked about the, the goat cheese thing. I, I mm. just, I just saw this thing. I'm watching this thing about Italy and I was seeing how this, this person down in, uh, was over in um, maybe the Bologna area up there. And they were talking about these cheese makers. Um, and depending on the altitude at which the animals graze, you get a different flavor of the cheese. Mm. And, Amazing. and like the guy, the gentleman that makes the cheese, he can tell you just by tasting it, what altitude it was at, which is tremendous. And so I'm thinking to myself, like, here's this cheese and I see this cheese. I buy it. It tastes good. I have no idea about that story. Mm. I have no mm. idea that those animals have roamed and been there for how long. I have no idea mm. that there's different levels on purpose, different things. But to your point, like it's on, it's on them to explain that and to tell the story. And like, you know, and that maybe that I think that is, that is a big, um, a big defining thing. And our last few minutes, I want to ask you this just because, um, you know, as a, as a neuroscientist and, and I'm, I'm also in, um, um, mental health is a big passion of mine. I host another podcast mm -hmm. on that. And mm -hmm. there has long been an association between creatives and mental health and mental, sure. uh, mental illness and mm -hmm. not in a bad way. In fact, a lot of mental illness is born out of neurochemistry that your brain is wired in a specific mm -hmm. way that gives you the power and ability to do certain things others can't, mm. but it pulls away from the other social aspects. And I think bipolar, schizophrenia, a lot of those things. Are right. Have you seen that in your industry? Do you, I'm just curious, have you, have you is there something sure. anecdotal or do you, have you seen that around? It's such, it's such a good question and it should be asked more often. I've seen it in my family, you know, like it, it, I think that that is there, that's our traditional portrait of the artist, right? Is this right. suffering person. Right. Um, and I think that the, yes. I've seen it a lot. Some of it is that we're not, some, some people don't feel this, hopefully the data of, of understanding where you fit in society, like of us saying we're the fourth largest employment sector in the capital region. Hopefully that helps someone who can't see their value or can't be felt, right? Their impact in the world. And so hopefully that that's something I hope it affords people. And we've had people walk into our events as freelancers because you work by yourself. It's super weird sometimes. Right. And they've walked into those events and they cry. And they're like, I didn't know. I didn't know that. Like, wow. I didn't know I mattered. I didn't know. Like, they love the data. You know, I've seen that, that way. It's validating to someone. And because you don't, as a creative, you don't always get a lot of validation in this world. Not everybody is like, oh, it's the best cheese ever. Correct. You know, they're like, this cheese is crap. Right. You know, they don't get it. And so, like, you have to have the fortitude to be able to do that. And a lot of our passion and ability comes from our weirdness, right? Yep. And so we're, we walk around as basically weirdos, you know, trying to put on a nice jacket and not look weird, you know, like trying to function in this world. Um, and to not all of us have the, um, the self-esteem to be able to put that out there as like, no, I'm wearing this, you know, it's like, it's weird and creepy and you feel weird a lot yeah, right? yeah and to, it could be very to, dark. it could get very dark if you feel like that yeah you, of course you feel like you have something that really means a lot and is really special mm -hmm. but no one recognizes it or you feel like it would never make an impact that's gotta yeah. be, have a major toll on you it it does and yet don't this is what i would say to someone don't do it if you if that's too depressing for you because that is the experience right you have to and not everyone's from new jersey like we're i'm saying it jokingly but you know where you get put down a lot, you know? So 
you're going to get put down a lot. You know, not everybody's going to love everything Very you do. Critical, and, yep. mm-hmm. and I would say that maybe that's a great reason to go do something else and do this and have this on the side for yourself, right? Like that's the best thing about side hustles is that your income's taken care of. You're, you know, you do something where you feel solid about it, but then you can have this weirder, um, this amorphous thing on the side where you're finding your way through it right. until it's ready to stand on its own. And there's been so many businesses born that way where, where you work out all those kinks. You, you get yourself up to speed and trained in the way and, and really like your fortitude inside, you know, is, is to a point where you're like, okay, it's time. I can do this. Well, I think and that's a very logic. That's a very tangible and logical progression. I think I, and I've read for entrepreneurs and I've read a lot about that is that, you know, if you're doing something, if you have a full-time job, but you feel like you have this passion for something else, do it mm-hmm. at night for a while. Try to explore yeah. it and get into it, uh, not as your main. Like, I podcast, I've been podcasting for 10 years, and I do that um, outside of, I mean, this is can, this podcast is connected to my job, but it's a little, but I have another show that's not. And I do it because I love to communicate yeah. I like to have conversation and it's a real strong passion of mine. And I think it's the creative that I, that I do. This is it, my ability to yeah. have conversations. And I wouldn't feel complete without it. Is it going to make me millions of dollars? Probably not. But does it, is it fulfilling? Yes. Does it give me an outlet? Yes, it does. And that matters. It really does matter in life. I, I, you know, it's not always about that. It really does matter to be self-fulfilling. And sometimes it's okay to start it like a small thing. And maybe it turns into something and you can fulfill a full-time job with it. Maybe it doesn't. And maybe it all it does right. is give you that fulfillment. And that matters. Right. And, and when we're say, if you're tying it back to mental health, you matter, right? Like, and that so much to me, you know, just, just understanding that you matter or what you're able to contribute or what your little path is from your heart out to the world, right? That's your mental health right there. So don't put too much pressure on it. You know, it's a good, that way you, you can leave your finances. Everything can be to the side, but you're finding your voice, you know, you're finding your way through and that's creative. You know, no one can judge that. And, and, you don't always have to put that in a position for someone else to judge. It can just be for you. And some, and that is super healthy. So um, our time, our time has come to an end, but I Mm. want you to tell everybody where they can learn more about ACE. Where can they go if they want to get some more information? Sure. Um, You can Google Upstate Alliance for the Creative Economy um, or or you can go to upstatecreative.org. We have a newsletter. That's a lot of how we've been convening uh, (laughs) because we can't put people in a room yet. But um, so that's the best way to to um, to find us now and on social media. But that's that's the best way to find that project. We're also launching a new project called the Cap NY Project, which is a regional brand. um, And you'll hopefully people will hear more about that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we will we'll we'll definitely link to it in the show notes for people listening and they want to see the link. It'll be there for everybody. And um, she is Maureen Sager. I am Chris Fasano. This is the Get Over It podcast where we come together, discuss the various ways to stop just getting through it and start getting over it.